Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today's episode is a live recording of a conversation I had in Santa Barbara at the Fest Forums conference earlier in the month of February. My guest was American musical treasure Jesse Colin Young. Jesse Colin Young's been a pioneer of American roots music for more than half a century, and he's left a unique mark in the intersecting worlds of folk, blues, jazz, country, and rock and roll. As the frontman for the Youngbloods, he immortalized the ideals of the Woodstock generation with Get Together, an international hit that called for peace and brotherhood during the turbulent 1960s. During the decades that followed, Young expanded both his audience and his artistic range, releasing a string of solo albums that mixed socially conscious lyrics with top-tier guitar skills and gorgeous vocals. An acclaimed songwriter, singer, instrumentalist, producer, label owner, podcast host, and longtime social and environmental activist, he's established a permanent place in America's musical landscape while continuing to make modern music that's every bit as vital as his work during the countercultural era. Later in our talk, we're joined by Jesse's daughter, Jazzy, a performer in her own right who's been working with her dad over the last few years. And now, my talk with Jesse Colin Young. So we have a lot to explore in the next little while. We'll get to as much of it as we can. But for now, once again, join me in welcoming Jesse Colin Young. Welcome. Good morning. So we don't have a ton of time together, given we've got a few decades to cover. So I'll pick some highlights, if I may. Good, please. All right. (laughs) But first, I have to start at the beginning. Tell me about the world you grow up in, specifically the world of Queens when you grew up. Yeah, I was born there in Manhattan Hospital, actually, and then we lived in Queens. So we lived in an apartment. It was kind of neat because it it surrounded a block, and then in the middle of the block was lawn. It was hard to come by in Queens, actually. My father was a classical pianist, but an accountant, and he would come home from work and play the piano, and just to brush the day away. <laughs> My mother had a beautiful voice, and she would always sing. If he played, of course, if he's playing something classical, she can't join in. Although she might come and say, Fred, that's a B-flat, that's not a B-natural. <clears throat> she had perfect pitch and a beautiful voice. And I had an older sister, four years older, who also had a lovely voice. So they were singing, and I think... Before I learned to talk, I was probably singing with them and just because I know when my son Tristan was born, he would kind of, before he was speaking English, he would just, I would sing and he would yodel. I I have a dog that does that now. Is there something about the familial bond that adds to harmonies? You know, the Everly Brothers, people like that. Is there something to that? Singing was our main recreation. My dad had a car. Being a thrifty accountant, there was no radio in it. So we were the radio, and the same thing in the house. There was no television until I was 10. Singing was bonded us together. Yeah. It was our fun. It was our joy. So it was always there. Music was always part of your life, always part of your family's life. 
And did you ever have a notion that you might do something else with your life? You know, when, when did music become your aspiration, as opposed to thinking might maybe accountant or whatever else? Well, I remember being in a play at camp. They had me singing a cowboy song, <laughs> The Old Chisholm Trail. That might have been my, no. And one of the counselors came up to my mother and said, this might be his vocation. He's good at this. My mother probably shivered and thought about me starving somewhere. And She's actually the one that gave me permission to do this. Ellen Freed came on the radio when I was 10 years old with something he called Moondog, which was doo-wop and rhythm and blues. And I had a radio in the headboard of my bed, and I found that I could leave that radio on if I turned it down mm-hmm. all night. My parents never hear it. Yeah. I spent years just listening to music, 24 hours a day, pretty much. Yeah. I understand that you tried your hand a little bit at college, but you ultimately wound up in Greenwich Village, in and around the scene there, playing on your own, ultimately forming bands. What were those early gigs like, and did you primarily play in the city? Like, Were there gigs outside of the city in those years before sort of the rock ballrooms and all that took off? What, was it, what were those early shows about? You really couldn't play those kind of shows without a record. So you played the basket houses hoping somebody would pay attention and earn a little money. I quit my straight job for a while because my apartment building went on rent strike and... Uh, that was marvelous. So for nine months, I had to pay no rent. So if I could make 10 or $15, I could eat. I could even eat on less than that, hot dogs. I lived on hot dogs <clears throat> from the street vendors. And lived to tell about it. <laughs> <laughs> and lived, yeah. Yeah, the basket houses were there. And I was, I had transferred from Ohio State to New York University. You know, I grew up in New York, but I, I had no idea what Greenwich Village was and no idea what was happening there until I got there. And I'd been playing the guitar for five or six years and writing songs. And all of a sudden, I was looking out the window of my class, and there's these people start showing up at the fountain with instruments. And I'm thinking... What am I doing in here? <laughs> I'm supposed to be out there. So yeah. I quit school, joined them. What was the first, I want to say break, but the first piece of momentum you got that said, oh, wow, this is working. I'm going to do this. I think it was after uh, I was working at the Rockefeller Foundation, purchasing medical equipment, which I knew nothing about <laughs> for universities in Latin America. So after I, I had done that, I, I had spent a year after I read Jack Kerouac's On the Road, hitchhiking and working in a factory. And, you know, in the factory, a lot of guys, you know, I had eight fingers. Or, so I went in there saying, okay, I have 10. I'm going to come out with 10. And I did. But it finally occurred to me that maybe I could make a living with the guitar because I hated the rest of them things that I tried, and they bored me. So there I was in the right place at the right time, but purely by luck. Yeah. And it's been that way from the beginning, yeah. yeah. When the band first started, when the Youngbloods first came together, my understanding is that you guys spent a lot of time 
at the Cafe El Gogo? Were you the house band, or what did that mean at that time? And who was coming through? Like, what, what were what was that scene like? Let's see. The Blues Project was the other house band. Mm. We shared that, but really, both of us were there to get the free rehearsal time because this fellow named Bill Hanley had built some incredible monitors run by this beautiful big Macintosh tube amp. We never heard anything like him. So to have hours on that stage, you know, the Youngbloods were a couple of folk pickers. Banana was kind of a Jimmy Reed fan. Corbett was ragtime. Our drummer was a jazz drummer. And then we couldn't find a bass player, so I decided to play bass. (laughs) So we had a brand new bass player. (laughs) And uh, we're performing every other night or three or four times a week. I got to open for Muddy Waters. That was like being in heaven. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What ultimately brought the band out to the West Coast? If I understand correctly, you came to Marin County in 67. Was that just part of like, go West, young man, and that's where the scene was and the movement was happening? Like, what were you guys thinking? Well, we weren't thinking. We, We flew into San Francisco and played the Avalon Ballroom on June 15th. 1967, right at the beginning of what became the Summer of Love. And, uh, well, I'm from New York. People don't smile at you in the street unless you want, they want money. Or that's how it was anyway in the 60s. So I'm looking around, everybody's smiling at me. I couldn't believe it. Hard to believe that. No, and the audience, Get Together was on the radio. It was released the first time in 1967 and was... Only a hit in San Francisco, maybe on the north coast, Seattle. It was two years later, that, right before Woodstock, that it became a national, international hit. But there we were. There were the people. They were obviously in the get-together place. And get-together was on the radio. And we played the first show, and we all kind of looked at each other and realized that we're in our hometown, our new hometown. And we went back to New York, packed our stuff, and moved to Marin and I guess because we had all lived in cities either in Boston, Cambridge or New York I mean the lure of being able to live in the country because we were a self-contained band because eventually we had our own PA system and we didn't need to live in the city so we settled in West Marin Yeah, it's beautiful yeah I can imagine as somebody who comes from if I can say it this way, like a tradition of song, you know, songwriter, the music you talk about is so, even folk, so song-based. What did you think of the San Francisco bands and that sound? Like, were you, did you like that at all or was it not up your alley? How did you react to, like, the psychedelic scene? Everybody was different. Everybody sounded different. I remember David Lindley had a band whose name escapes me now. Kaleidoscope, thank you. I mean, they had an oud player and belly dancers, but also they had a song that I remember listening to it on. We played with them once. So everyone, Lee Michaels, one guy and a drummer, his drummer named Frosty, just killing it. And then Janice and all the out-of-tune guitar players with Janice singing over the top of them. We didn't have good tuners, you know, little... (laughs) So <laughs> the audience and, probably didn't mind. <laughs> yeah, and wonderful. And then a group called Sparrow came through, a blues group from Canada. 
all the groups we played with, the dead. That was dangerous. <laughs> no open containers. So I took my own water to the dead shows because I ran. <laughs> I didn't understand. I had tried to play. I, I played with the Youngbloods two days after I'd had it experimented with acid and... I'm the bass player, and, you know, you have to know where the one is when you're the bass player. <laughs> and I went out there and said, God, it could be here. <laughs> <laughs> or it could be a little over here. <laughs> so I got through that and swore off. But, you know, a lot of great music's been played by people flying on ass. I can't believe it. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. But I want to use sort of the end of the Youngblood's era to pivot into some of your own work. But I want to talk about, I want to talk about one song in particular. I want to talk about Darkness, Darkness. You know, incredible version by you guys. I think a lot of people here may know the Robert Plant version. I was stunned to find out that there were a few dozen versions of that song over the years by a variety of artists. Mott the Hoople, Richie Havens, I think Ann Wilson from Heart played. I mean, just a, a lot of people were drawn to that song. And I wonder, other than what I would consider a fairly nice financial and economic impact of having such a, an embraced song. What's it feel like to know you've written something so durable and versatile that all of these other interpreters can come to it? And can you enjoy that? Can you enjoy their versions? What is that for you? To write a song that people love to play, it's the best. I think what we all want is to be able to contribute something and give something to our world and make it a little shinier somewhere or a little deeper or be able to turn people's heads to look at something that needs to be looked at that we've been avoiding. What a pleasure to write a song like that. I mean, it's, it's at the heart of what I think most, most singer-songwriters want. They want to share this. And when it goes beyond the audience to other musicians you respect and love and to hear them... I know Robert Plant was very excited. He somehow got a hold of my phone number. I was living in Hawaii on a coffee farm after our house burned down in uh, Marin in a forest fire, 95. He said, I'm recording darkness, and I want you to hear it. So he sent me like seven mixes in those days. They were doing a mix for every different kind of radio. And what a thrill that was. He was riding in a limo in London, and I'm on the, the veranda of my coffee, six-acre coffee farm, and admired their stuff. That was a great... Uh, he was tickled to do it, and I was... Yeah, what a thrill. I was pleased to hear it. He wanted to know that I liked it. What did you tell him? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it had to come through the mail, you know. Yeah, that's really incredible. It's such an iconic take on that song. We'll be back with more Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media, after this break. And now, back to Spotlight On. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, you had such an incredible run as a solo artist there in the early mid-70s, four or five records in a row. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what it meant to you in your career to be specifically on Warner Brothers Records, which was a place at that time that was just known for sort of letting artists grow and do their thing. Do you feel you benefited from that, or was it agnostic for you? Like, Could you talk about that? Warner's was the label. It was a home. I mean, they were the first label to have uh, artist relations people. 
who took you on the road when your record came out. And they loved music, and they loved the experimentation. I mean, Joe Smith <laughs> went and lived at the dead house, or he may have spent a night there, but probably enough. He also lent me the money to buy a tape machine, you know, a $20,000 tape machine the size of a refrigerator in those days. And I brought it down to L.A. to do some live recording. And Joe came down, and he threw his arms around the tape machine and said, it didn't go for a wild party. <laughs> Which maybe he had lent some money to Clearly, he, uh, that was coming from experience, yeah. But that, that was the heart and soul of that label, Joe and Moe, and that kind of thing. Well, you need 20000 Yeah, I got to buy a new tape. Okay. You Let know, the artists follow there. Make some good music, and please, maybe by April, could you... But that's that was all the pressure there was. Yeah, they really they respected, and I mean everyone has their own way to find their way to the end of a record, and they allowed all these different artists to find their way into some great music. Yeah. Did you like the recording studio? I know you built one, at least one. Did do you you like the studio environment? You like that process? No, I never liked it much. And when we got to living in the country, I thought, what if I built one next door? And I think it was Three Dog Night that had a hit on Sunlight. And I got a $25,000 check, which I'd never had before. And I said, I'm going to build a studio right here in this gully. It's funny. And that studio, because it was so far down in the gully and wet down there with a little, with a little well... When that whole area burned and our four-story house, you know, these are big pine trees, burned down to mm. a foot of ash. That's all that was left of it. That studio was sitting there when we arrived in this forest of smoking stumps that were once 100-foot trees. And it had four boards scorched on the deck. That's incredible. It's still there. That's incredible. It's still there. My daughter Jazzy, who has started a couple of years ago her recording career, she actually uh, cut some tracks up there with my godson, who I taught to be an engineer. Could we have Jazzy join us, maybe? Would that yes. work for you? I think we're <laughs> supposed to have an extra microphone up here. Let's, uh... Brian. Good morning. How are you? Let's get you a microphone. Um... We got one coming. Thanks. All right. So I didn't bring it up. Jesse did. So uh, you have him to thank for this. Tell me about that. Tell me about, like, was music inevitable for you or were you on a different life path? I would say it was probably inevitable. Yeah. I mean, I grew up with him (laughs) playing music all the time and my mom who played violin and viola. So I originally learned classical piano and violin when I was a kid. And my dad gave me my first real-size Taylor guitar. That was actually my mom's originally, and it was one of the few things that survived the fire. And he taught me all the chords I know as of now on the guitar. (laughs) And that's when I started writing songs with a guitar. But I use piano as well. But, yeah, I think so. I mean, I went to college. I didn't drop out. But after college, I was like, it was the only thing that, I had always done, like, I've always written songs ever since I can remember. They bought me, like, this little uh, 
songwriting book when I was in elementary school, and I still have it. I couldn't spell. I don't really know what I was saying, but I feel like the energy was there. Yeah. It, was, it was in my head. It was all very abstract and not spelled correctly, but the essence was there. Yeah. How do you two work together now? What's the... Are you recording? Are you touring? Like, in this post-COVID world, what's going yeah. on for the two of you? We did our first tour, or we started it this summer, actually, after we recorded our first song together. Or, yeah, I guess that was mm-hmm. our first song. In 2021, we did a Cat Stevens' Trouble cover. And we did it cross-country. So he recorded in South Carolina, and I recorded in L.A., and we put it together. And then, yeah, we went on tour this summer, and we're still on tour now, actually. We have a couple dates coming up. Nice. It's been so fun. We've had, like, we have a couple other songs that we put together that I do harmonies we do a couple duets and then it's really fun Jesse how um recording cross-country are you um are you technically literate are you the guy in the studio (laughs) no I surrendered I I I taught myself analog recording I just started with two mics pulled up off the stage I learned it like that and some guys from the dead said get this book you're going to build a studio. Get this book, this big fat book. There's a, you know, 60 pages on acoustics. I read the book and, you know, said, okay, no parallel surfaces. You don't want a lot of hard stuff. So we built this funny looking little building. And I don't know how I got there. How did I get here? <laughs> he was asking if you did like the technical recording stuff for this. Yeah, but no, um, I have never made the jump to. Um, and actually, I started realizing that I think somebody should mix my records whose years are younger. Yeah, well, yeah. that's fair. That's fair enough. Can you, either of you tell me about the experience of working together? Like, what, what's it mean to you? Because you, you know, you've been working for a long time. It's not a given that you had to choose this path or this way of being a creative yeah. person. What's the role? Of, what does it mean to be doing this with your family? I think it's so wonderful. I mean, he has actually worked with a lot of his kids throughout the year. I'm the last one. I'm the youngest. But it's been, for me personally, this is the first tour that I've done. And it's just been really incredible to learn about performing with someone that is my dad. So we get to share this beautiful bonding experience. I get to learn from him. And I get to be in front of this like wonderful audience because his fans are so supportive and so kind. So it's such a safe environment to explore my artistry and then to have that with my dad it's it's just it's beautiful what's next for the two of you so you have you have some shows you have some dates booked is there more recording to look forward to oh no there's three there's one at the libero in about a week a week yeah yeah the ninth and you hear that right two days (laughs) (laughs) for jazzy yeah she's writing a new album you should talk to her about that (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, Tell us. I, yeah. So we have these dates. I'm, yeah, I'm currently working on an album. I haven't finished writing it, but that's my goal this year. But I hope that, yeah, we've, we've learned a couple different songs together and maybe we'll do some more in the future for yeah. sure. That'd be all, I mean, I think it's always fun. So we leave that open for sure. If he's up to it, I am. You know, it is. It's been a family tradition. I've played, yeah. I've played with all my, all my children, but I was waiting for one with my mother's beautiful voice. Oh. I finally got one. Oh my God, he's going to make me cry. <laughs> Don't do it <laughs> When you're songwriting, Jazzy, are you, are you thinking about, is it just for you, or do you have a band arrangement you're thinking of? Like, what, what's your ideal 
what's the ideal yeah. vessel for your music? So originally writing was just my way of understanding how I felt, I would say. Um, so I've written all of my songs myself, like by myself. And then I usually come to a producer with the full song and a direction I want it to go and work really closely with them. I think ideally I would love to have a band at some point to be able to have some other perspectives, but um, songwriting wise, I'm pretty prolific with it. Like I write a lot, but I'm always open to collaboration. Um, I'm open to more of that, but yeah. Have the two of you written a song together? Or are you f- focusing on other people's songs right now? Like We're focusing on his songs mostly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe that'll happen. I, I have not written a song in three years. I am going to take a year off the road and stay home and get some discipline. Some inspiration. Two cups of coffee and then go in. And One songwriter said, it's like fishing, but you gotta put you got to put your pole in the water. And sometimes you sit there, sit there, play all these licks that you've learned and they're boring you, and um, occasionally the new fish comes along. But you have to put in the time sitting there staring at the water, and that's what I need to do because i got to... This is maybe the longest that I have been without writing. Wow. Yeah, in my life, which started at 15, I think, my first love song. I was in prep school, (laughs) a boy's school, of course, it was a love song to this gal I, I was crazy about and <laughs> never got to saw, to see. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, we only have a couple of minutes left up here together, and I wanted to see if anybody from the room had anything they wanted to ask or, or offer up. Here, let me, uh, let me walk down there and give you the microphone. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Hello, my name's Samantha Behrman. I run the Santa Barbara Laugh Festival. Here in Santa Barbara next November, we'll be going off, kickoff to, uh, yes, the holiday season. Can't miss an opportunity to plug my event. My question is, <laughs> I'm personally and a little professionally curious how you went about asking for a $20,000 casual, like, loan. I mean, did you just say, this is what I need? And they were like, oh, yeah, that sounds that sounds great. Here you go. I mean, I'm, I honestly, genuinely, how does one navigate that kind of a big ask for that much and then apparently they trusted you just enough to think you were going to use it properly but also not enough that they were surprised (laughs) yeah that was warner brothers i was signed to a five record deal and song for julie was the first record out of the box and it sold well it had no really hits on it i remember david giffen said there are no hits on this record and therefore he didn't take it. But it was the time of FM radio blossoming and seven-minute songs like Ridge Top were, were happening. So it, it sold well enough for them to realize that they could advance me $20,000 and they'd get it back. They expected to get it back in the next record or hopefully more than that, obviously. <laughs> yeah, sure. Thank you. Anybody else? Oh, there we go. Thank you for a great conversation. Peter Bell, Telluride Jazz Festival, Telluride, Colorado. Question Mm -hmm. about the um, songwriting process. You have lyric, you have melody. Is one a starting point? Do they evolve in your mind together? Can you give us any insight into the uh, creativity process in in writing a song, in embarking on writing a song? Mostly it comes for me while I'm fooling around with the guitar 
for a while, and then I play something new. It's just a little piece of something new, and maybe I'm able to put two other chords with that in a way that I've never done. And so there it is. There's the bud, and I make sure with my phone to record everything because I had lost so many songs just thinking, I'll pick this up tomorrow, and tomorrow it's gone. So I keep track of them that way. And, uh, you know, I'm actually looking forward. I've got a bunch of pieces like that. I've got a lot of buds buds sitting in my phone and my recordings at home. And I'm looking forward to going back over them and making them blossom into full songs. Um, My question's actually for Jazzy. You said you you write very easily. Does the melody come to you in more difficult ways? And what instruments do you work with? Yeah, so I'm actually the opposite of him usually. It's usually the lyrics first. Sometimes it's together. But I would say I write mostly on the piano just because I learned that earlier. So for me, it's like I I can fool around with more chords that way because it seems more just like understandable. But I write on guitar as well. So I write on both of them. And yeah, it's usually lyrics, but sometimes it's together. Sometimes songs come out and you're like done in 20 minutes and you're like, this is a full song. And then sometimes you have to work it through a bit because you're like, okay, this, I like the idea, but I need to go back and like. That's only happened to me like once in my life. (laughs) (laughs) So there's some genetic improvements going on here. (laughs) It's probably from her mother. Jesse, Jazzy, thank you both yeah. for starting the day with us. Oh, thank you all for joining us. Let's give it up. Thank you. thank you so much, Jesse Collin and Jazzy Young and the team at Fest Forums. As always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're presented by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Our producer is Michael Donaldson, and our theme music is by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. Today's episode was recorded on location by Craig Snyder. If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. You can visit us online at SpotlightOnPodcast.com or at SpotlightOnPod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening, be safe, and stay in touch.